Blackbird episode number 22. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Mark Changizi. Mark is a cognitive scientist who's written books and articles and uh, even invented products in all sorts of fields relating to the way that we perceive the world, including colorblindness, um, the evolution of language, why humans communicate via music, um, and more recently he's been really good on the way that we are perceiving the world and each other through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic, and in particular, you know, masking and that sort of thing. So I wanted to talk to him about his work, about um, the way that he's seeing things right now, and just to introduce him to my audience, because I think that he's someone who is definitely worth following if you don't already. Before we get into it with Mark, let me tell you once again about Paloma Verde CBD. Uh, Paloma Verde, of course, was founded by former guest on this show, Carlos Avilar and his wife, Vanessa. Um, They sell all sorts of CBD products, everything from delicious gummies to fast-acting tinctures and even products for your pets. Um, If you're into CBD or if you're just looking to try it, give them a look at palomaverdestore.com and use the offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout for 25% off your order. Once again, that's palomaverdestore.com and use the offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout. And with that, here is my interview with with Mark Changizi. Mark, thanks for joining me. Uh, great to be here. Uh, so um, I've been watching your YouTube videos. At first, uh, I, obviously, I was taken by the the mask stuff. Um, but as it turns out, you have a really fascinating body of work. Um, before we get into it, though, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself to the audience so that uh, they know who we're talking to? Hey, so yeah. Um, I'm a theoretical evolutionary cognitive scientist of some, you know, which isn't really a thing, you know, short stories. I'm a, my PhD is math. I'm a physics math guy. Uh, but I really, you know, when you look at my high school essay for college, it was about, Hey, I'm going to go do math and I'm going to do physics because I ultimately want to understand the deep questions about the brain and, and how we can come to think and, you know, all these sorts of deep questions. So that's the kind of stuff I've worked on is really tr- try to understand why we're structured the way that we are but more from the evolutionary side. I'm, I'm really interested in why we are as we are, why culture is the way it is, why we have these, you know, the complex relationship between humans and uh, the society around ourselves and uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I, I think prior to 2020 and maybe even still now, um, like I said, I just I just found your stuff uh, a few weeks ago, um, but you did, you, you've done a lot of work on like, vision and illusion and perception uh can you can you kind of talk about like what what your kind of main theses are in that realm yeah so one of my books is is vision revolution and um and i go through a a variety of uh, discoveries that i'm sort of known for in that field and there are things like why did we evolve to have color vision uh, so in, instead of for a hundred years, they thought that color vision was about finding fruit in the forests because it's just some of us primates that have it. And I was able to show actually it's it's in an empath sense. You're actually able to see through the unique variety of color vision cones that we have, 
um, you can see the blood under the skin, the oxygenation modulations, and that's what allows you to sense these states and motions and health. And actually, I have a company that comes out of that. We make color blindness glasses and, and vein finder glasses for medical personnel because it optimizes the very signal that you know, uh, color deficients are missing. You know, they don't have the new red green dimension that we have. Uh, why we see illusions. Illusions are your brain trying to see the next moment because your brains are slow. So I have a TED talk on this and, you know, you're always a 10th of a second delayed because it takes a 10th of a second for your brain to create a perception. So you need to, you need to not try to perceive what last hit your eye a 10th of a second ago. You need to try to build a perception of what's going to happen a 10th of a second later, because by the time you actually perceive it, a tenth of a second will have happened. And so it turns out that little tenth of a second delay between your brain creates perception compared to when it got the information on your retina, a lot of stuff in the world has moved. And by understanding how the world changes as you move in the world during that delay, you can understand uh, tons of these sorts of uh, geometrical illusions and, other, and, and a broader variety of illusions. Uh, why we have our eyes face forward, and then I'll, I'll, I'll just have your eyes face forward, not because because predators is the standard story and it still probably says that in wikipedia no fish are predators birds are predators they all have sideways facing eyes they see behind them above them below them they have a panoramic view they're all predators the animals um that are have forward-facing eyes that are disproportionately forward-facing are in fact predicted by those that live in forests and have a lot of clutter around them when your eyes face forward yeah you can't see behind you so you lose sort of half but it turns out that you can see through layers of leaves to see like x-ray vision, see farther beyond those leaves. And that actually allows you to see more of your world, despite seeing sort of not seeing behind you, you get a much up to four to eight times more, a, a greater view up in front of you. So these are kind of always looking at, again, the evolutionary design structure, understanding us in our environment and our evolutionary habitat and understanding sort of the, the fundamental advantages of why we're designed or engineered to be the way that we are. Uh, you one of your recent science moment videos was about portrait versus landscape mode with your with your cell phone camera. Um, I have a friend who is he, he studied film in college. And uh, so when portrait mode started just becoming a thing, like you'd see it on the news or whatever, um, he was just outraged because that's not how you're meant to uh, you're not that's not how you're meant to watch you know, video on a screen, it's supposed to be in landscape mode. Um, yeah. And uh, here we finally, we finally have 16 by nine televisions. Why aren't we using them? Um, and, and uh, you made a really good point about why when using a cell phone camera specifically, and especially in selfie mode, um, why it is beneficial to actually use portrait mode. Can you explain that a little bit? It, it gets into that illusion stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, these are trying to really understand the, the micro dynamics of, you know, these, these specific small, seemingly OCD level uh, uh, levels of detail. Um, when you, the, you know, the problem with the camera, when you put it on landscape mode is that the camera is always on one of the far ends of the rectangle. And so uh, what you want to do, if you're just doing a video of yourself, is you typically want to look in your own eyes because you want somebody's eyes to look into because that's what it's like to have a conversation. So um, problem is when you're looking at your own eyes on the screen, the actual camera is very far you know, off to one side rectangularly. And so from the viewer's point of view, they're looking at me not looking at them. In order for me to actually look at them, I'd have to look at the camera, which is a, off of one side. I'd have to look at the, uh, the camera lens, which is way off to one side of the phone. And then I can't look at myself in my own eyes. I'm looking at this weird thing. And yet my own face is sort of wanting, you know, it's grabbing me back. It's very hard to do that. So um, in portrait mode, 
my head would typically be near the top of the screen, which happens to be that my eyes are then very close to the camera. And so from the viewer's point of view, I'm almost, you know, it's negligible, the difference between my eye direction and the camera. And so it looks more like I'm looking and engaged in an actual conversation with you when in actuality, I'm in an actual, I'm in a conversation with myself, so to speak, because those, you know, you want somebody's eyes to look at. And this, by the way, we're, we're doing a podcast, but James, we're actually, you know, we're actually doing a live video as well between us on Zoom so that we can actually talk like real humans. It makes the conversation much more natural. And I appreciate James that you get this in some sense in your bones. All of your podcasts apparently are, you know, live or whatever you want, you know, whatever with, a, with the faces in front of each other uh, so that we really feel much more connected. And that surely changes the nature of the conversation rather than just me staring into space. It, it, it just doesn't connect us in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, how do, how do masks, uh, complicate things when it comes to the visibility of facial expressions? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with emotional expressions in my next book coming out uh, early next year is uh, called Unmasked, uh, uh, Why We Express Emotions um, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Tim Barber. I've been working on this for almost a decade. Understanding uh, the function of emotional expressions, uh, deriving them from first principles about really what this, what they needed to be for social animals, how they function function and so forth is sort of what that's all about and sort of from a rigorous bottom-up first principles perspective. But most folks um, don't need to know any of that to do it very well. You do it naturally with your bones. We evolved to do this, but we're not consciously aware of any of this. So so most of us don't appreciate the extent to which our emotional expressions are really what we're saying most of the time. Um, uh, It's often that you sometimes people imagine you're saying these words and there's a little bit of intonation on top of the words, you know, like with, depending on the emotions you're throwing on top. And that's like a little bit of cream cheese on top of the substance. But it's often really the other way around. Really, the stuff that's really driving the conversation, driving how the behavior changes is by virtue of the emotions that are being expressed. And the words almost matter uh, little at all. And it's the difference between uh, a speaker, an orator that stands in front of a crowd and speaks like you know a robot voice. Uh, nothing will happen. He may, he may, he or she may, or it may convey certain kinds of information, but no one is going to get rallied to do anything, and most are going to p- potentially forget what he or she said because it's not going to come across as something that they want to believe or or want to be led by because the person has put no, uh, 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 you know, they've evoked nothing in them and they've uh, put no confidence in what they're saying. Um, and so trying to understand what it is that exactly that emotional expressions are doing um, is, is part and parcel with, with these things. So the masks are covering these things entirely. And I'm trying to I'm avoid diving into the, the, the actual function structure of emotional expressions. It's a long conversation. But when you cover them over, um, you're, all of the social media, all of the, the complex behavior that is mediated by social, social expressions um, is eliminated. And you, in some sense, do know what that's like. The reason that Twitter is a quag, just a mess, just like an ugly pile of trolls behaving towards one another um, is because we don't have the ability to emotionally express. If you actually meet the same people, even some of the folks that you just really do not like on Twitter, if, if you're just at a, you know, at a park and having a you know, nice gathering in, in normal life, you'd all be pleasant to one another. You'd, you'd be behaving very differently. And so you might think that's just because on Twitter, uh, you're anonymous or effectively anonymous because you're not going to really run into each other. But we encounter an, people anonymously in the malls, all the, you know, wherever you go in life, you're seeing all these people, you're very nice to them, they're nice to you, and you know it, you're not going to see them again. So they're effectively anonymous. And, and so it's, it's not anonymity. And in fact, on Facebook, where most of the people that you interact with are family and friends, 
that's even worse than Twitter in my experience. Once you go to the comment section, people are just really toxic. So what's missing on social media is not that there's too much anonymity. Really what's missing is our, our ability to express emotions to one another. And those are the things that allow us to put, uh, uh, to have nice, calm, not troll-like behavior with one another. Um, and that's also what masks now in real life are in the way, are, are getting in the way of. Um, do you think that uh, some of that is generational rather than evolutionary? Um, for instance, uh, like if I look at my dad's comments on Facebook, they seem just really, really harsh and trolly and um, unthoughtful. Um, but that that's how my comments seem to some of my younger friends. Uh, so I, I do wonder if, um, and maybe it's just something that's been conditioned into us. You know, I'm, I'm not a digital native, but I, you know, I, I was in high school in the late nineties, um, and early two thousands. So I've, you know, I've been on the internet since my coming of age, I guess. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, so there's the question about how we, and I'm flat-footed on exactly how things may have been changing generationally. All of us, of course, in the absence of, um, of, of the ability to put emotional expressions uh, in the sense of actual fate, you know, and right now there's in some social media uh, mechanisms, there's, you know, you can put smiley faces and various things on Facebook. You've got five different ones to pick from. Um, you can, of course, like and unlike is along these lines as well. There's, there's, there's an obvious sense in which social media companies realize that they need to put emotional expressions in there. And they don't understand for the reasons that I, from where I'm coming from, I have sort of worked out, here's in fact the full range of emotional expressions you need to allow people to have to properly interact with one another in such a way that they can also bet when you emotionally express to one another, you actually put reputation at stake. If you're really trash talking with me and really showing a lot of pride or showing a lot of disdain towards me, and it turns out later that I'm found out to be right, you lose reputation, I gain reputation. These things are happening all the time this is why certain kinds of emotional expressions can leave you humiliated later, right? But having the full range of these things in line, along sort of the back and forth negotiation that happens in normal uh, emotional expression, expressive interactions is what's actually needed. So social media is sort of in their bones, they sort of get it. They're adding more and more ability to do this. But in the absence of that, and those things are really just, just, you know, just nothing really compared to what you really need. Folks are still trying to put that in using or in, in a normal sentences, we can still convey a lot of emotional expressions. We can change the spelling of things on purpose, and that connotes something. We can the, for everything that we do in, in text. We're still uh, very good at conveying a lot of emotional expressions. It just in the text itself, even though it seems very sterile. So you could imagine that generationally, um, some of those who are, you know, were born in Facebook, so to speak, born in Twitter rather than entered it later in life. Maybe they're just better at, at, at exuding their emotionality in different kinds of ways and different kinds of funny ways of talking, different kinds of meme like, you know, phrases, which everybody knows it means this kind of emotional. And so they're just much better. Whereas, you know, certainly your, your, your dad or, you know, my mom, if she was trying, is just going to be hopeless at, at doing any of that. Because um, to the extent that they're good at writing, they're good at writing in a, other kinds of formal contexts where emotional expressions, it wouldn't about, it wouldn't have been about, you know, interactions between other, other individuals who broadcast a large number. So that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'd be curious if, if someone was, were to study that. Um, you mentioned reputation uh, as part of that answer. And you have kind of a, a, 
I guess, a long Twitter thread um, that gets into that where, you know, when a, when a researcher writes a paper, they, they cite their, they, they cite their level of confidence um, in their statistics. We don't do that in normal conversation. Instead, we put our reputation on the line. Am I, am I, am I catching your drift? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Right. So do that a little bit. Yeah. So the, the way, so this, and this is also another way to come at this is with something that's called honest signals. So honest signals in evolutionary biology is that, uh, and this actually happens in some emotional context too. When you turn red, you get more oxygenated and you turn red, oxygen being, showing that I'm red, let's suppose you and I are in a physical fight or something like this. We're about to get into physical fight. And if I can show red on your face and you're just like just green and sallow because you're just exhausted already, um, that's an honest signal. I can't show oxygenation unless I'm strong, right? Um, but that, that's a very peculiar, that only works in the very specific circumstance of, you know, running, fighting or running or something like that's cardiovascular. If we want to have a generic language where I can say all kinds of things and you can actually believe what I'm saying or have some way of, you know, potentially something Mark probably is not lying, then you need a much more generic way for social animals to talk to each other that is not just where we're just lying and saying stuff for no, you know, willy nilly. And the way that you do that is, is basically by betting. And that's how poker, that's why poker, of course, people are lying in poker and bluffing in poker. But to first order, poker keeps people honest because you're betting something that's dear, you're betting money or, or, or something else that's being put at stake. And that will tend to keep folks honest most of the time because, um, and, and often you can come to an agreement, you can have you know, people at the table, some betting occurs. And when you bet, you, you, you're conveying confidence the more that I bet, I'm just saying I'm more confident. Confidence is an emotional expression. But rather than conveying it with my face, I'm conveying it with money. I don't actually have to express anything because the money, the bet conveys that. And we can actually come to an agreement. You could say, okay, Mark, uh, you, I, I'm going to agree that your hand is stronger than mine. And we never show each, other, each other's cards. That would be like a fight or some kind of going and asking mom who should get the cookies or whatever it might be where you've called and you've got to actually figure out who's right. No, we come to an agreement. We never figure out who was in fact right, but it, it's settled. Uh, uh, amicably, so to speak, so to speak, that happens only because we're able to bet in poker. And in real life, social animals evolve to figure out that the way that you do that is that you make these claims of their emotional expressions. And the reason that it's a bet is because um, other people are watching. People are paying attention in, in the tribe. Oh, yeah, well, you know, over time, Mark has said these things. Turns out he was right and, he was comp and his reputation is right. They're keeping track of these things and, and they rise and they fall. And they're actually very much like blockchain. Actually, I'm sort of not getting it to the specific thread that you're talking about, but I'm, we can get that back to that later potentially. It's actually a lot like blockchain. The reason that blockchain and cryptocurrencies are interesting from an intellectual point of view is that it's a distributed way with no centralized bank that can keep track of who has uh, how much cryptocurrency, who has that much money. Um, but there's no bank that says that, and so thus no bank that can confiscate it, for example, no government that can confiscate it, so to speak. And the way that it's done, and of course the problem, the hard problem about that is that I may give a Bitcoin to James, and then later I said, no, I never gave a Bitcoin to James, and then I wanna give it to Judy over there. So how does so the blockchain is what, uh, the, the fact that the blockchain turns out to be really immutable and it's sitting on everybody's computer and it's not easy to roll back and create a false history is what makes blockchain smart but the reason that all the reasons that blockchain is smart turn out to have an analogies in social network contexts um so suppose that i did a fight with you a, a verbal you know we're in discussion i'm really trash talky and it turns out that i was wrong i remember was like mark is so stupid he always does this kind of thing and again james was right i've lost reputation 
that's remembered in the community. And that gets added like to the gossip of the community. And then it, you know, at like a block, there's a, you can think about um, people often like the good gossip tellers in the community will say, they'll come up with a story that sort of explains that week's events. It may not be the exact truth, but it kind of elegantly compresses which is what you do in these when you when you glue a new piece of a block onto the chain, you come up with a really hard. It's a hard problem coming up with an elegant description of a complex week's events, and they come up with a nice simple story. Oh yeah, well it turns out Mark is always this, and it may not even be true, but they come up with some kind of simple uh, explanation that summarizes that week, and that keeps happening week to week. That sort of help t tells a useful history of the of the history of the events, and um, so that has a proof of uh, work aspects to it. And then there's proof of stake that the people who are more likely to uh, say yes to a new block being added to the chain, it's, a, it's the people who already have higher reputation in the community who are the ones that are more likely to be believed in terms of, of, of you accepting their story as to whether that was what happened last week. So th these reputations change right change over time by where these social animals are arguing through their emotional expressions. And they acquire reputations which rise and fall and are rel relatively immutable, unchangeable by virtue of sort of the natural structure that happens, which in some sense blockchain was modeling itself. And in fact, blockchain uses the metaphors of high reputation. They, you know, they're using social social uh, network metaphors. So it's exactly social, it's actually emotional expressions that undergird all of these sorts of mechanisms that lead to reputations rising and lets the society move towards the truth over the long run without a centralized fact checkers, without top-down censorship. And of course, it stumbles ugly in an ugly fashion, but that's how science works. Science works not by virtue of the whole community doing P, you know, less than 0.001 tests. Sure, each individual is made to use these sorts of things, but over time, the community stumbles because their people have risen in reputation, fallen reputation, so and it stumbles towards the truth. It's these mechanisms which got broken when mass hysteria hit last March, and of course. It's even worse if we had centralized fact checkers doing this, which is then what happened afterwards. Then we've got all the big tech and uh, CDC and all these things working together, which are preventing people from, from actually continuing the decentralized process, which needs to happen, which lets people who are high reputation, who've been saying true things, be more believed and so forth. But of course, it is a failure of these decentralized mechanisms. And it's part because social media doesn't have the kinds of emotional expressions that you need. And so you ended up with just this positive feedback loop of media being scared, which scared people, which scared intellectuals, which scared the politicians, which scared media. And so this positive feedback loop of fear of infection. And um, so the question is, could social media have been structured better, including emotional expressions that are properly allow the people to behave more like they normally would, um, as well as other kinds of measures? Because of course, social media is not 300 people in a tribe where we evolved to have emotional expressions where it works. We've got three you know, billion people what other kinds of mechanisms would have to allow it so that it would scale up properly to help prevent these kinds of uh, madness of crowds spreading as they did as quickly as they did. These are the kinds of things that, that I've been, you know, I have a new research. Uh, my, my colleague, uh, Tim Barber and I uh, launched two weeks ago, a new research institute called FreeX, the free expression group, freex.group um, that's devoted to research and study of free expression and communicating um, the importance of free expression and really how it undergirds all of these kinds of things that we're talking about. And I think people tend to think free speech is about free speech. And a great world will be one where everybody just talks calmly without emotion. And if we just do that, that's, no, that's missing the point. It's very counterintuitive, free expression. What really matters is emotional expression. These are the kinds of things that undergird the, the stumbling towards truth that these decentralized networks are good at or kind of good at you. Yeah. Um, so that, that connection between social 
social networks, not not Facebook social networks, but like our social networks. And blockchain is really interesting because uh, blockchains are are described as trustless um, because you know you have such a high level of confidence in the reliability of the blockchain that you don't need to trust. And I think you know the the higher the reputation of the town gossip or of you know Mark as an expert in in this field or whatever. Um, the less trust you need because you just are confident in, in their ability to convey information reliably. Um, why do you think it is then that, for instance, Anthony Fauci is seen by some people as a, a, an in, like almost infinite reli- infinitely reliable prophet, but to others, he is um, almost wholly unreliable and, and corrupt. Uh, where do you think, where do you think that that sort of, I guess, extreme level of confidence or lack of confidence comes from, uh, and and also it also tends to overlap with their politics. So, like a person who believes who's pro-choice, for instance, would also have a high reliable, a high degree of confidence in, in Fauci, whereas someone who's pro-life would have a low degree of confidence in Fauci. These are completely different things, but they tend to overlap. What is that? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, we all, we all have a intuition, I think, for the answers to these things. That the hope is that coming from kind of the rigorous computational, you know, and math kind of background that uh, myself and 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 Tim Barber come from, that we can actually put rigorous foundations to to these sorts of social narratives um how they work how they um, how they fork you know um, how they can change how they um polarize and actually really understand them in a much more rigorous fashion but this you know the the short story is that i mean let let me back up even you might imagine so one question you might ask that leads you into this these waters is to say um, why is it that some people did fall into mass hysteria? And, and of course, they don't believe that there is a mass hysteria, if, if one, those who are in it, um, versus those that didn't. And now you could say, well, maybe there's, you know, is it IQ? Is it their, in, in, is it their degree of academic, you know, uh, training um, to the extent that there are, whether they're an intellectual or not? It certainly seems from my point of view that, that none of those things explain anything. I, I say, if anything, they potentially were counterproductive. Um, not per se, but because they ended up connected to certain other kinds of voices, which is ultimately, I think the reason is that really what matters most was where you were in the network when this kind of avalanche of information and positive feedback occurred. I have always pushed as a, as a theorist who wants to move into new fields always. And, you know, uh, I've moved, you know, we happen to mention vision, but I've been involved in why the brain is shaped the way it is and why your fingers get pruny when they're wet. And, all, you know, why do we, where, how we evolved, where did art come from? And, and lots, you know, comp, you know, in just actually just papers. and comp. So I've always moved from field to field and I want to be free to move to the next field without getting bound up in the community and only thinking that the problems within that community are interesting. It's really easy as a human to do that. So for 20 years, I've always had this very rigorous, explicit philosophy of remaining aloof. I will hereby never go to conferences unless I'm hired to speak as a keynote or something like this. And usually keynoters are often sometimes brought from the outside of the field. You know, I, I never wanted to become part of any of these communities. And so that was true for politics as well. I never let, tried to always prevent myself from becoming polarized and falling into one of these two camps or any camp. And so I think it helped me to some extent accidentally remain, uh, you know, aloof so that I could see this mass hysteria coming. But I think ultimately had I, 
as anybody, the reason that we believe what we believe is only 0.1%. And this is just for us scientists. I believe maybe that, you know, a couple dozen things because I was an actual scientist on the project of why we have pruning fingers say, and I actually did the studies and we have P less than 0.01. And so, you know, so I had the data that justifies what I said. And so I can actually believe that. And otherwise 99.9% of what I believe and hundred percent of what other people believe. I mean, of course they have data in their regular life as to whether there's still cookies in the cookie jar downstairs, given what they last experienced. But generally what you, ex what you believe is based on what other people tell you. You know almost everything you do because somebody else told you, whether it's a media or another intellectual or a grandma, it's just what other people tell you. And you believe the things that are coming from those different directions to the extent that you um, think that they have higher reputation. It's, that's exactly what drives us. So in the case of uh, last mid-March, when this happened, why well, you would hear from your favorite intellectual and another favorite intellectual seemingly saying the same thing, but potentially historically, potentially independent. But of course, there was nothing independent about what was going on. So you heard it from mom and you heard it from a politician as well. And then you heard it from 73,000 friends of yours who were saying the same thing, all of and who had personal experiences to this extent. Everything that you heard was all saying one um, turns out to be highly fantastic in the, in the terms of uh, improbable uh, thing. You begin to believe that. And so um, and if you're in that spot in the social network such that you're hearing all that, you're going to believe it. If I had been there, I would believe it as well. Fauci's there. He's going to believe that. And he still believes that because he's still surrounded by the same folks that believe it. Intellectuals in the United States, academia is, you know, 97, 98 percent far left. It's, you know, it's one and a half percent libertarian and then then almost three per three people who are who won't self-identify as right right so you have a situation like this and it was unclear in the first months it hadn't polarized quite yet in the united states and in other countries it polarized in different ways it's, it's the left that's it's it's the it's the um it's the left that's pro against this COVID hysteria in sweden it's the right in israel and england that's um that's locked down locked down locked down and being highly authoritarian and in the United States, for the first month, it was unclear. All of my libertarian, I'm, I'm classical liberal. All of my classical liberal folks that were kind of the intellectuals, my go-to, so they all went authoritarian. They full Karens, all of them. A lot of the folks on the right, full Karens. I, the, some of the early friends that I had on Twitter, because I felt alone in the beginning, I was the only one saying, this is, this is crazy. I hadn't found the community yet. None of us had found each other. Some of my early folks were communists. They were like, they were, you know, capital C communists, but they're like, yeah, but even communism doesn't work if, <laughs> if the economy is frozen. That's, that's just stupid. I mean, you know, this is so. Um, so it, and so there's and then there's, there's a lot of folks. I don't know when. So Naomi Wolf is now on on my side and retweets my things. And I was, you know, historically uh, uh, far left from from the right point of view, far left. Uh, uh, and of course, we've got Ann Coulter sort of, you know, both these folks are now retweeting my stuff, which is a weird world to be in. But overall, certainly. So it's not the case that the left went um, lockdown per se, but it's definitely much more so in the United States that it became. 90% a left-right thing became a, 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 a lockdown, uh, anti-lockdown thing with a lot of exceptions. So they quite, you know, and so why is that the case? Well, once you're part of a narrative where your reputation, being a part of a narrative is sort of being a part of a social community is the same thing as being part of a narrative because part of that social community comes along with this sort of gossip and narrative. And the narrative is what holds the history of the rises and falls of the various reputations and folks within a narrative who have acquired reputation in that narrative um, don't, I'm going to say this as if it means they're thinking in this way. It doesn't mean they're thinking in this way. This is just, but I'm going to say it first and I'll say why it's not. They're, they're, they don't want to lose the reputation that they developed, by, that they've gotten by virtue of being in that narrative. 
So they're they're not going to jump ship and go to another narrative because where they have no cap, you know social capital in that in that new narrative. But that's not saying I'm not saying this is what they're thinking. And this is one another problem that comes out of all this. People when they look at other folks in a social narrative, and and the reputation, they think they're doing this on purpose, twiddling their their mustaches. That oh, you're just not going to jump ship because you know that you've accumulated reputation. No, that's not the, what they're thinking at all. They've evolved, given the other voices that are within their social narrative. That's, they really believe that their reputation is because they've been saying true things. They're not, they're not faking it. They really believe it. They're not, so you believe the things that you do because you're in that social narrative, and that's what's provided you evidence. And so it's, it's, this is another part of free X and trying to explain to folks that it's trying to have tolerance for folks in uh, opposing views, because sometimes the opposition as a group is almost doing evil or maybe really doing evil, but the individuals rarely are. You know, often evil can be done at the level of the group and, and you know, obviously, sometimes there's disproportionately, you know, complicit folks who did know or should have known, you know, politicians, the, the dictator, whatever like this. But very often, um, a bunch of nice people can end up as a group doing evil things, and and that's what makes it so hard to wrap your mind around. Um, when you had to walk back all of the Germans and force them to go back into the camps and see what had happened, you kind of want to slap the crap out of each of them, but in some, most of them really just didn't get it, didn't know, and they were individual. They were all part of this mass delusion as well. And understanding and attributing culpability is complicated. It's not as simple as people want. There's just evil people and good people. It ain't like that. And uh, you have to understand narratives and all of these things and and and, and emerging phenomena. And these are hard for the same reasons that natural selection is hard. You know um, that there's all of this design at the whole um, without a designer. And that's that's tricky for everybody. Yeah, I have a I have a friend um, who actually he's a he's a former guest on the show. I'm not going to name him because I, I didn't ask him if I could like bring this up. He but, doesn't uh, think you, you, yeah. he's your friend. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, his I think great grandfather actually voted for Adolf Hitler, um, oh. and like he uh, he disavowed him after you know all the Hitler stuff started. He had Jewish employees at his business, but uh, you know, something had to be done. Um, and I think, I mean, that's how, that's how a lot of this stuff happens. Um, what do you think? Well, so first of all, from like a, from like a cognitive science standpoint, what makes us susceptible to mass hysteria and mass delusion and things like that? Well, I, I, th I think it's not really anything more than, well, so two things. Um, individually, I think all that it requires is just being, you know, your position within the network. And and then if it happens to be that, well, to make an individual susceptible, you just have to hear enough high reputation folks saying these sorts of things, and then you're going to start to believe it. And it can be something that's demonstrably false in some sense, but you're nevertheless going to believe it. But why mass hysteria is more like where where is mass hysteria more likely? And there's two different kinds of things which made a fear of a pandemic uh, as dangerous as it is the most dangerous thing for humankind. I think first fear is different when you're afraid it's contagious. It's even contagious just for yourself. You can infect yourself with fear. This is like um, when you're you know walking to your car from the mall at night and you hear something you know scary. And then you get a little bit heightened and then, you're, then you start walking faster and then you, they own, you know, your own echoes are scaring you more, whatever. So now every little thing that you get, you're getting more and more frightened. So fright uh, compounds on fright. And if I see James frightened, I look over there, James is frightened. Now, if I see James is hungry, I don't go, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, now I'm hungry. You know, that's not how it works. 
But if I see that James is frightened, I can get frightened. And I don't even know what he's frightened about. And then I, you see me frightened, you're frightened. Because you're like, so if I was really calm and you saw me, maybe I could calm me down. But if I'm frightened, we can then have a positive feedback back and forth. So fear isn't like um, everything else in terms of perceiving other people having fear. It, it, it's the kind of thing that um, it, it can jazz itself up and, into positive feedback loops, which is what we saw. If we had... And that, that's bad enough. But if it had turned out that we were all afraid of um, locusts, you know, locusts were coming and invading the crops or it was, you know, like um, basketball sized comets coming from space that were going to, you know, hit New York or hit all of the earth. We'd all be like working together. We say, OK, James, everybody, we got to get together. We're all frightened. Yeah, we're all freaked out. But let's all work together to build these structures or dig underground to hide from the, the stuff. But fear of infection is different because not only is, do we have fears is a very uh, sort of uh, uh, instinctive thing, but infection cooties. So in English cooties sort of is this invisible thing. We typically use it as kids to refer some kid will say some other kid has cooties and there's nothing visible about it. But once you know, they have cooties um, everybody wants to avoid them. It's sort of, it, 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 it just puts this infectious notion onto them. Or everyone and, get, everyone wants to get their cootie shot, uh, the vaccine yeah. against cooties. <laughs> right. So, and, and even, you know, a lot of totalitarian and, and authoritarian states and, and revolutions have used, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the metaphor of infectious. Jews are potentially infectious. Of course, you can't become Jewish, but being hanging around them is sort of bad. And haram in, in Islam, hanging out with who are not good Muslims or not Muslim at all. is a, If you're hanging around the cultural revolution, Chinese culture, people that have money or, or bourgeoisie, they can infect you. And you should show that you don't even hang out with them, that you should disavow them. These sorts of metaphors are used accidentally. They, they sort of find themselves are selected for to further those sorts of narratives. And in this case, of course, there really is an infection. It really was an infection. It was astronomically exaggerated and so forth, but it really is there. And so when there's an infection, people's fears get even more ramped up. But the problem is that all of the solutions, every way of putting up a, an umbrella to protect, rather than putting an umbrella to protect you from something, you know, that whatever shield, the shield is, is between each person and every other person. It ends up to be that there has to be shield between every pairwise individual. And it exactly cuts into what, uh, uh, you know, a society needs to be. Um, you, you have to lock down at home. You have to cover your faces and human identity and emotional expressions. You have to socially distance, never get close to each other. It just fundamentally grinds up what it is to be a society. So this is why it's disproportionately dangerous. Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, do you think that the mass hysteria on in America, the left, broadly speaking, kind of replaced that like energy that you get from political rallies? Um, do you think that's why Trump still held held rallies, whereas Biden was able to win the presidency campaigning from his basement on webcam? Well, or am I missing the mark? Well, I mean, so so, so say the, the fool. So you're saying that. Um, the f I mean, sp specifically, I'm wondering if the, the brain chemistry that you get from being in a rally or I mean, even like a like a spiritual retreat, all of yeah. that kind of stuff, you kind of get that same feeling you get and then you go away from it feeling like an afterglow. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if the people who uh, yeah, I see your consciously avoiding these sort of situations yeah. for the past year um, got that same rush from knowing, oh, I'm doing the, I'm doing the right thing uh, by, by avoiding this stuff. Yeah, there's a, you know, and we've all experienced, like when, when you get the big 
rare two foot, two and a half, three foot snow, and everybody's stuck at home for two weeks. And like, you know, like life has stopped as you know it. And you kind of, oh, this is like a post-apocalyptic kind of cool situation where everybody's out, you're hanging, everything's sort of new and post and you're dealing and struggling through this, this time together. And I think, yeah, those that were fe feeling that COVID was this sort of temporary apocalypse may have then felt like they were bound together uh, in a way against the, the in infectious ones like us who were not necessarily um, following all of the directions were, were ruining it for everybody. Yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. I'm not sure if that actually, but I, I, I get, I get the, the point that you're making. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm not sure, though. How do mass hysterias end? Is it uh, I, the, 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 the illustration you were presenting earlier reminded me of like in a movie, like a disaster movie where, you know, the monster lands in downtown Manhattan and all of a sudden everybody stampedes. And it reminded me that reminded me of the stampede in The Lion King that killed uh, that killed Simba's dad. Um, oh. And so it, it seems like this mass hysteria started out a little bit gradually and then really built up steam. Um, and I'm wondering, like, what what what's it going to take to end it? Yeah. Well, as you know, Charles McKay in his sort of famous 150 year old book, The Madness of Crowds and so forth, this um, has a nice preface. And and it, what it mentions is that, you know, usually these things don't, of course, you know, I'm not sure on, on what basis he's concluding this, except for lots and lots of examples, but this wasn't done in a scientific manner. But but anyway, but the idea, his, his thought was that these things don't typically seem to end uh, without rivers of blood, you know. Um, this is often takes another revolution and something really awful for these things to actually stop. And certainly that seems to be the case. And in, uh, in many times when you find these mass hysteria that have happened in, in, in one specific country or region, uh, it doesn't just go away. Um, in Iran, it's still, you know, it's more than 40 years later since the revolution and the, and the cultural revolution that came along with it in terms of all of the other kinds of uh, uh, new kinds of rules that women have to, and everybody has to, to suffer through, which is why my Iranian, I'm, I'm half Iranian, my Iranian wife and, and my family are, are all here because of trying to escape that kind of uh, authoritarianism. And it's really the same kind of mass hysteria. Um, but, in, you know, this is one of the kinds of things we're trying to work on. What, what can not only potentially stop these things from happening, in the, first of all, what governs them? How can we potentially stop or inhibit these from happening in, in the future? And then even uh, the hardest problem is how to un, un, unravel them once they are happening. So I don't have great answers right now from as a theoretical scientist point of view. I'd like to be able to say, here's theorems we, and, and here's the kinds of results that I can tell you. But certainly the intuitions, a couple intuitions are um, without a river of blood. You know, one of the ways that you might imagine doing it is you might call it the Jesus solution. Right. And one of the you know, this is no one really likes the solution. But the idea is that if you want to have a social narrative, potentially um, if you want things to, to roll back, we're well, not going to roll them back. First of all, these no social narratives are not going to go back without rivers of blood. And if those who are driving the narrative and driving society in within the narrative, which are sort of the intellectuals, journalists, and so forth, who are on site, you're going to have to find a way to motivate their narrative to sort of wiggle towards the truth on its own and make it so that they are not losing reputation. That you have to set up the mechanisms such that they're willing to go towards, stumble towards the truth, and they retain their reputation. This is one of these things like, you know, is it moral to, to offer Saddam Hussein? Okay, Saddam Hussein, you can come over here and you can live, you know, on a nice estate over here in Connecticut. And if you just agree to, you know, it kind of, no one really wants that. That's just not right in many respects. But then again, it allows them to maintain some kind of face, keep face 
uh, and then leave and let things go forward. So the question is, uh, are there uh, ways like that? And, and so it, it still does even, even a solution along the, this is just an idea for a kind of solution. How you'd actually do it is still unclear, but you can see that certainly like that, you can imagine some, something like that might exist. And of course, whether the opposition, most you know, the folks on my side would be willing to bear it, it was another matter. Because a lot of times folks are just would never want, they want to see blood. They want to see people lose reputation. They want to see the humiliation for what they've done. And I think this is, you know, sometimes the brilliance of certain kinds of religions, each religion has culturally evolved with these potential insights about and how, they, and how these religions interact with brains and so forth. But one potential, you know, uh, really insight about, about Christianity as an atheist, I mean, is that this kind of, uh, 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 what is it called? When you, when you apologize to someone, it, whatever, um, what's the main, I mean, having mental block of the word anyway, but letting people re, re, not, um, like atonement, atonement. Yeah. Letting them just let it forgiving forgiveness. Oh yeah. Way. There you go. Forgiveness. Right? You have to just ask Jesus to be forgiven for your sins. Um, a lot, you know, giving forgiveness is potentially one of the few ways that I imagine this could this could go forward. The other way that it could just continues. I don't see it without any kind of act, anything active or any kind of rivers of blood. I suspect that in the history books, it'll just be for at least generations. It'll be written about the pandemic and all the, the, the difficult things that happened. It'll be attributed to the pandemic, to the pandemic, to the not due to you know, the fact that none of the interventions worked or that there was hysteria. That's not what's going to make it into the history mm -hmm. books. I don't see at least not for generations. So the question is, are there uh, forgiveness, oh, I couldn't find that word, are there forgiveness-oriented solutions that allow the social narrative to um, be pushed in that direction or, 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 or attracting it in that direction towards the truth, or maybe at least it forks, there's some, you know, they, they fork and, you know, a majority of the, the narrative ends up over there, and there's always going to be some other fork way and never willing to admit, we'll say. So that's one option. Um, but I'd like to be able to formalize that rigorously. Sure. That exactly. That's a that's pretty similar to what Curtis Yarvin, um, formerly known as Mencius Moldbug, has been writing about lately. Uh, he's sort of crafting a guidebook for whatever whatever sort of state emerges from post Republican America, uh, which he predicts will happen in the next generation or so. Um, he he says, you know, look, you will want to punish your predecessors but you can't do that because their followers are still here um so th th that's that's pretty that's pretty similar i think mm -hmm. um and you know I, I i don't necessarily subscribe to everything he says but i think his writing is very interesting so uh, and i think i think that's required when you mention curtis yarvin you're supposed to say i don't agree with him on everything it's part of the script so <laughs> uh i guess in the last few minutes um i would i would love to hear some of your more um you know, just non non hysteria, non COVID uh, stuff. Like, I mean, why do you think our fingers get pruny? And why didn't why don't we why don't we know why our fingers get pruny? I didn't even think it always to me just looked like my fingerprints were swollen. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, the standard and you've heard the standard story, which is still probably in Wikipedia for all I know. The standard story that you've always been told is that uh, there's water absorption osmosis and therefore wrinkles, something like this. Now that doesn't even make sense on its face because when water absorbs into things, things don't get wrinkly, they get swollen. It's the opposite of wrinkly, right? So on its face, that never even made sense. Uh, back, um, I was looking into some papers, I was trying to study other aspects of trying to explain why the just fingers are, and hands are shaped 
like from first principles explaining why do, are they shaped as th like this. And I had found papers from the 1930s, which uh, surgeons had noticed that if a patient comes in injured and unconscious, but, and there's a damage to their arm, let's say, and you want to check, is it, is it, has the nerve been cut or not? Like they can't tell. Well, they said, realize that if you stick their fingers in warm water, if they still wrinkle, then the nerve has not been cut. And so it was a way of uh, gauging whether they've had a, a nerve cut by virtue of, and, but then you're just like, oh, wait a second. So it's not just local osmosis, which never made sense. It requires a nerve connection, which sounds, you know, from my point of view, as a, I'm a, you know, I'm an evolutionary kind of design. I'm oriented. So I said, well, there, this might be on purpose. Like this is a potentially design reasons. What might the possible design reasons be? And I had a graduate student at the time. His name was Roman Weber. And I was talking. I said, yeah, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Why would you want to get wrinkled? You know, uh, wrinkled. He goes, well, they could be. They could they be rain treads? And so then we went for the next you know, six months or year trying to work out. Okay, if they really are rain treads, so that. So, for example, you know, a, a race car on dry surfaces, race cars have no treads. You don't want treads unless it's wet. You want treads because it's wet, then you need to uh, uh, ch uh, you need to, to um, get, channel the water out so that you don't slide on a thin layer of water, hydroplaning. So the question then is, um, we have nice smooth uh, treads, roughly speaking, except for the, fin you know, the, the finger, uh, 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 your thumbprints. Um, but they be, they're smooth when it's dry, but then they become wrinkled only when it's wet, which is a great idea if they really are optimized to be uh, rain treads. And in fact, you can work out, if you actually work out what the rain treads would have to look like, they actually look like, um, they actually look like the channels on convex mountains. When you actually look at the channels, when you work out how you squeeze, when you press down, it's you first touch in one point and then it expands and expands and expands and has the topography of a mountain. And then you can work out given how what your mountain ranges so in some sense look like on your fingertips when you squeeze you can work out what the channels should look like and in fact they have exactly those shaped channels they have the peculiar so they're going to op be optimized to squirt the water out as you press so that there's they're spending as little time as there as possible so that you don't hydroplane on the water so they're rain treads yeah wow that's fascinating <laughs> holy crap uh i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to read more into that that seems like something that uh wouldn't evolve randomly but uh you know <laughs> um okay so where does yeah, it's not random like i mean right i mean yes there's randomness all over the place because it's like the ugly you know, natural yeah. selection is a really ugly design mechanism but it's not all random because it's it's that's why it, it selects over time for things that typically work so it's just a really really slow um you know has random prop, but not all random. Yeah, yeah. just want to make sure. How about how about language and writing? Where do where do those come from? Yeah, so there's a Envision Revolution, uh, one of my earlier books. I uh, I talk about why how we came to to read, how we came to have language more generally in the in the follow up book Harnessed. Um, we know that we didn't uh, evolve to write and to read because it's uh, only several thousand years old, and most of us have great grandparents that are just illiterate. So it's not possible that we evolve to read, but we read so well that it's almost as if we have an instinct for it. We read more every day than we than we listen to these days, um, and we read them. And kids learn to read very early, um, you know, after it's certainly not as quickly as they can comprehend speech. But they're not being spoken. They're not being words are not being thrown in front of them as often as as, as speech is either. So they learn incredibly well. It seems as if we have an instinct for reading, but of course we can't have an instinct for reading. Um, and the reason in the story is that instead, cultural evolution, once it got 
once it gets running, it can design things for human minds. In this case, the shapes of letters over time got shaped to look like the natural contour conglomerations that happen in natural scenes. When you look around you in the room that you're in, you'll see L junctions, just the corners of where one contour you know, meets at the tip of another contour. You'll have T junctions when some object is in front of another object, one of the contours goes behind another contour. You'll have X junctions, which are in fact very, very rare. They don't actually happen in three-dimensional environments. And you can work out there's there's K and there's another 35 of these sorts of junctions if you're just looking at three contours or fewer. Some of these are common, some of these are rare. And so the question, the prediction should be, do the letters that when you look across hundreds of human writing systems, do the common ones in nature, are they the common ones in writing? Um, because those are what you'd expect if it's been selected over time to find the letters that the, the brain is good at. And that's in fact what you find. When you look over hundreds of writing systems, the ones that you find writing systems are disproportionately the ones that are common in nature. And the more common in nature, the more common in writing systems. And it's not because they're easier to write, um, it's just because they're easier to see. And so that's turning your visual recognition system and harnessing it for this new power of literacy that we have instead. And the same for, turns out, so the next book, Harnessed, shows the same thing for speech. Speech, which is much, of course, older, we never evolved to speak. So I'm arguing against Pinker, who otherwise I think Pinker's right about that language is, just, is not something we simply learn, but he thinks it's an instinct for it. And I think it's, it's not learned, language is not learned, and it's not an instinct either. That cultural evolution over time shapes the structure of, of, of the sounds of words and the sounds of speech to be something that our brains are already good at processing. Whereas the looks of letters look like you know objects and natural scenes, the sounds of speech sound like natural events, the events in natural scenes. They sound like hits and slides and things bumping into each other and sliding. Hits just are like plosives, puh, kuh, tuh. Slides are like fricatives, sh, f, s. And then when something is hits or slides, the objects in them ring. And those are vowels. Everything rings. And on the basis of the ring, you know, I mean, this is the sound of a, of a coffee mug. You know, this is, well, I shouldn't have told you this. You know, you can tell that's, this is, that's something more coffee mug-like, not shoe-like hitting the ground, right? These are the kinds of rings that happen, and they're like vowels. And in fact, that's just the first step. So you can, you can ask over and over again, what are the grammars of the kinds of ways that the sounds of natural events combine? And you find, well, that, that's exactly how the morphology of how phonemes combine across languages. So again, whether it's writing or for speech, cultural evolution has shaped the looks and the sounds of these things to be what we're already, we already have instincts of object recognition instincts or event recognition instincts. It's tapping or harnessing these mechanisms turning us into human 2.0s that we are today, because we seem so smart today, astronomically beyond our human 1.0 selves. But in this case, it's not because of natural selection taking us forward from our sort of, you know, 500,000 year ago ancestors. It's cultural evolution that's doing all of the evolution, creating all of these engineered things to tap into the same old software and hardware that we always had. It sounds like you do this stuff for fun. Like you just <laughs> happen to find a way to monetize uh, your your curiosity. I think that's that's really fascinating. That is so cool. Um, what it, what would you say if if someone wanted to like just learn what Mark Changizi does? Where would where would they start? Well, you can go to you know uh, uh, Changizi dot com. Uh, uh, just Chang like Chinese sounding, but it's it's actually from Genghis Khan. Changis Changizi. I-Z-I, Changizi, um, yeah, .com, you, you'll have links to everything that I'm up to, uh, the Free Expression Institute, 
links to Twitter, where these days it's sort of COVID and free speech and hysteria all the time. It's less, you know, it, it's a little bit more in that world, but, which some people, um, but yeah, Changizi to come. And then my science moment video uh, series at YouTube would be another great place to start. Awesome. Um, and then uh, do you, do you have like a favorite book that you've written or are they all kind of, is that like trying to pick your favorite kid? I, I, I think my, my vision revolution has six or seven or eight discoveries of mine in the visionary harnessed was one big discovery on you really, you know, arguing against the, the alpha males, alpha scientists, you know, Pinker and Chomsky in some sense, these are the, some of the biggest folks in, in the science world. And I, I think at the end of the day, in the long run, and, and not setting aside the upcoming book on the Orchard's Emotional Expressions, which I I'm, I'm also think is going to be big, but in some sense, in terms of overturning um, thought in the way, in terms of, you know, Chomsky level kinds of overturning, I think that Harness is one of my favorites. And I think it's still less appreciated than Vision Revolution, that people, that, that it's really oh, uh, providing a whole new way of understanding how it is that we have language, how it is that we are the modern humans that we are today. And it's not at all what, what folks still think. Yeah. I think Harness is probably the one that I'm going to start with. I haven't read any of your books. Um, so, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the description of that one was the most interesting to me. So that's the one I'm going to link to in the show notes, but uh, I think that um, everyone could probably benefit from uh, devouring your content. Um, I'm really glad that I found your YouTube and you know, I mean, even though it has really focused on COVID, I think kind of everybody has for the last year. So um, I certainly hope that you are discovered by a lot more people because you're just super fascinating. And I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me today. Um, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to, you'd like to throw in before we uh, part ways? No, it was great to be here, James. All right. Um, great. Well, thanks Mark. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on when the book comes out. That'd be great. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. Thanks again to Mark for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, <clears throat> Mark has one of my very favorite YouTube channels, so I'll make sure to link to that and maybe also link to a select, uh, to a sort of a curated selection of videos that I find particularly interesting that you might as well. Um, I appreciate your subscriptions. I hope that you are subscribed on Substack. Head to blackbird.substack.com to sign up there. Um, but wherever you listen to the podcast, I appreciate you tuning in. Please make sure that you're leaving those comments, thumbs ups, ratings, reviews, etc., 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 because that, of course, boosts this show in the rankings. Remember that when you sign up at Substack, all I need is your email. Um, you can sign up for the free option. You can also sign up for the paid option. At this point, there's not a ton of difference between the two, but the benefit of signing up for either one of those options is that you will get an email notification whenever I release content, whether it be this podcast or written content. I am hoping to ramp that up even more in the coming months. So in order to not miss anything that I put out, uh, please head to blackbird.substack.com, sign up there. That way you don't miss a beat. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free.